This is my conversation with Justin Horn, a collegiate assistant professor of philosophy at Virginia Tech. Justin researches meta-ethics, moral disagreement, and moral semantics. Our conversation dives into morality and ethics in a generalized sense, how they interact with intention and outcome, as well as their implications on government and technology. I hope you enjoy. Is there such a thing as objective moral truth or is morality completely subjective? Oh man, okay, I love it. We're getting straight into the big questions. So straight into it. I was thinking about this. I mean, a couple of things to say right off the bat. If you want just my short answer, my short answer would probably be neither, <laughs> that I don't really believe in objective moral truth, but I also don't think that morality is completely subjective. Uh, so there's some explaining to do. But before I do that, I guess I'd want to back up and say a couple of things. Okay. One is this. Um, so I'm a professional philosopher. I teach philosophy for a living. I've been in this world for a while now. And one of the weird things about working in uh, philosophy as opposed to like almost any other academic discipline is that for any big question like this, any big classic philosophical question, it's almost guaranteed that I have really smart colleagues uh, who have different views than I do on these questions. And because of that, I think in a way, like we can talk about the answers to these questions. I'm happy to share my opinions and be an open book. But I think it's more interesting in a lot of ways to talk about how we get there and what kinds of considerations might push somebody to one side or the other, um, both because I'm just one voice among many. Uh, and the, the plain fact is there's not really a consensus even among the experts on these questions. Um, yeah, and so, you know, grain of salt. And, and often on some of the questions you'll ask me, I probably won't be super confident. I might have leanings, but I might not have, um, you know, rock, rock hard convictions. Okay, so that's the, that's the sort of stage clearing. I guess I'd say this about the question of the objectivity of morality, just to start, right? I think a lot of people say that they think that morality is completely subjective. And I think a lot of people uh, think that they think this, but almost nobody acts as though they really think this in most contexts. So I, I would say, think about something that we really truly think is completely subjective. So, you know, the, the kind of flavor of ice cream that's best or something. Like, I really like chocolate ice cream with lots of chocolate stuff in it. But if I find out my neighbor is like eating strawberry ice cream in his house, my response is like, that's cool. You know, uh, there's no fact of the matter about what ice cream flavor is best. I have no concern that other people have different ice cream preferences for me. It doesn't bother me at all. Um, but then take like a moral conviction I have. Like, how do I respond if I find out my neighbor is like beating his children? Um, the response is totally different. Like, I don't have the sort of characteristic response that we have to things that are completely subjective. I don't say like, oh, that's cool. You do you. Um, Sure, I have my moral views. I don't beat my children, but like, who's to say whether beating your children is wrong? Um, I think I have a totally different response, which is like, wow, um, that's that's terrible. You shouldn't do that. If it's bad enough, I'm going to do something to try to stop you. And I'm going to do something to try to stop you because I think what you're doing is really deeply wrong. Um, and I think most of us are like that, like when the rubber hits the road and we're actually in our lives. Like, so I teach philosophy. Lots of people come into philosophy classes and they say they think morality is subjective, but then they go back out into their lives. And um, I think, to be honest, like almost nobody acts like it, right? We don't treat morality the way we treat other things that we take to be subjective. 
Um, so that's that's at least some initial sort of evidence against the completely subjective answer. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, on the other hand, is it totally objective? Like, is it objective the way physics or math might be objective? I'm kind of doubtful of that. We can get into the reasons why. Um, there are some very smart philosophers who think that there are objective moral truths in the way that there are objective mathematical truths. We can't mm -hmm. bump into them. We can't see them under a microscope, but they're, uh, they're there. They don't depend on anybody's say-so. They're part of the fabric of the universe, and they're just as real as uh, just about anything. Um, for a variety of reasons, I find that position somewhat incredible and hard to accept. Uh, but it's worth noting it's it's out there. And I think one of the reasons that people think that there are objective moral truths is simply that there are some things that seem to be good candidates for them. So just to give one example, uh, you hear philosophers often say things like, it's wrong to torture people for fun. And this is kind of a challenge to someone who thinks morality is completely subjective because most of right. us would say, yes, it is wrong to torture people for fun. And even if someone approves of torturing people for fun, it's still wrong for that person, the one who approves of it, to torture people for fun. Uh, and that suggests, you know, again, maybe we can't consi consistently endorse the, the whole completely subjective take on morality. Mm -hmm. So how much do you think that morality and ethics as a whole is a solely human concept? Mm. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting question. So, I mean, I don't think there's anything inherently or necessarily solely human about it. So, for example, I think if there were intelligent aliens, which there might be, um, that were social animals that had human-like capacities or, or even capacities exceeding those of human beings, I think it's extremely likely that they'd have something like morality. And even going in the other direction, um, I think... There are interesting pseudo-moral uh, characteristics and behaviors that we find in non-human primates. So uh, I don't know if, if you're familiar with any of this research, but there are some really cool experiments that seem to show that um, non-human primates have something like a sense of fairness. So one of the famous ones is, um, uh, it's a little bit mean, but it's also super interesting. They, they do this experiment with capuchin monkeys, and they're giving them cucumbers as rewards for... Uh, performing a task. And as long as uh, two different monkeys that can both see each other are both receiving the cucumber rewards, everyone's totally happy. But if you start giving one of the monkeys a grape and give the other one a cucumber, the monkey that's getting the cucumber is going to start freaking out because it's not because the cucumber is not good enough intrinsically. It's that the other monkey is getting a grape and, you know, to anthropomorphize a bit, like, that seems really unfair. It's unfair that the other monkey's getting a grape for doing a task and, and you know, monkey number two is just getting a cucumber. Um, sure. And so that looks like, you know, it's not necessarily full-blown morality, but this kind mm -hmm. of sense of fairness uh, is something that isn't, doesn't seem to be unique to human beings. And there's other things mm -hmm. too, like we associate morality with, with self-sacrifice, but there are various, various experiments that show that um, monkeys will sacrifice for their conspecifics. So for example, if they can if they can get food by pushing a lever, but it shocks a monkey in another cage, they might go a long mm -hmm. time without getting the food uh, out of a kind of, you know, altruistic concern for their their conspecifics. So that's just to say yeah. 
there are things that look kind of moral-ish that we find in other animals, and I'm not sure we can draw a super sharp line between, uh, you know, more human morality and um, the rest of the natural world. Primates are, are a very interesting example because I think obviously they're the most related to us. They have the most similarities with us, but there's some things about them that become oddly human, right? Like, uh, are you familiar with like Coco, the the great ape that learned like sign language, for example? Like yeah, that's yeah. that's mm -hmm. insane. Like if you had told me that apes that an ape would be able to understand and, and clearly demonstrate a ability to use language in effect in an effective way with humans, that's like mm -hmm. that's wild. Um, yeah. So, yeah. It, but but even beyond primates, right? If you take something like like if you take a dog, for example, like sometimes a dog will become very friendly with like a hamster or something that that your family might own. And even though th they get left alone in a room at some point, the dog doesn't eat the hamster because maybe it mm -hmm. knows that you care about the hamster and that mm -hmm. it cares about you. And so then it becomes this question of, are the reasons that animals specifically make these actions solely like a decision based on consequences of like, if I eat this hamster, I might not get fed by the, by the human, or mm -hmm. is it more like, is there more to it? And so it's that question of, are we applying human concepts onto animals and, mm -hmm. and beings where it's kind of doesn't exist or, or is it something that we're observing and just kind of like taking note of? So, so that's an interesting one too. Yeah, yeah, that is a really interesting question. Yeah, I mean, in the case of not eating the hamster, I don't know, it seems like it could just be a case of anticipating the human response, which itself is a sophisticated mental ability. But one thing, I mean, one thing that interests me about dogs is like, we'll probably talk about this a bit later, but morality is really tied up with certain um, characteristic emotions. And especially we can talk about emotions like guilt and shame. And one of the things that is interesting to me about dogs is that they do seem to have a capacity for shame. So like, you know, if you catch a dog, my cat on the other hand does not seem to have the capacity for shame, but uh, like a dog, you know, if it, if it gets into the pantry and tears stuff up and a human comes home and scolds it, like all of the, the body language from the dog, to me at least, you know, as somebody who doesn't study dogs, like, it looks like shame behavior, you know, they, 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 they recognize that they've done something they ought not to have done and they, right. they feel bad about it. Um, and that's, I mean, that guilt and shame are really important to human morality. And so if, if dogs can feel those too, that's, that's pretty big. Yeah. So that brings up two questions to me. So one is how much of those demonstrated behaviors are a result of, you know, training and biologically just sort of natural selection, like humans selecting and domesticating dogs in a way that they're more able to display the emotions that we want them to. So that would be mm -hmm. one thing. And the other thing is it kind of begs the question for me of how much, how much do you think intention and outcome matter in the context of morality and what is ethical, right? Because clearly there's a non, a non-zero implication for those concepts especially when you when you consider morality not to be completely subjective or completely like 
rooted in moral pillars that there's uh-huh. some room in the middle where well your intention obviously matters to some degree because if you accidentally hit someone with your car that's a lot different than if you just come down the freeway and aim for every single patron you can mm-hmm. um so so that's something i'd like to talk about and ask is how much have you seen or studied based on all the reading that you've done like how much do you think intention and an outcome play play a role yeah for sure so um I think intentions clearly matter for sort of reasons that you mention, um, and that we, we might even see more why intentions matter if we take a step back to the, the first part of your question. Uh, you were saying, like, to what extent does this behavior in dogs, um, to what extent is it the result of, you know, the process of natural and artificial selection taking place over many generations that we have bred dogs to display the characteristics that we want. Like, I think that's totally true. Um, and, you know, there are interesting differences between dogs and wolves. They're very closely related biologically, but one difference between them is dogs uh, have much more expressive eyes. They actually are capable of making facial expressions with their eyes that are much more fine-grained and are very uh, effective at sort of communicating with humans, um, stirring up certain emotional responses in humans, and it seems like that's clearly the product of this long process of domestication and, and the evolution that occurs with it. But I guess what I would want to say is, okay, so what if you know dogs can can feel or demonstrate shame because of this history of natural selection? I would say, is that so different from human morality? Um, one of the things I'm interested in is it it seems that a lot of elements of sort of human moral thought. Um, can be provided with sort of plausible evolutionary explanations, at least partially. Uh, So no one thinks evolution explains everything about morality. There's clearly culture plays a role and reasoning and all this stuff. But, you know, if you ask basic questions like, why do we think that pain is bad? Um, An evolutionary answer seems like obviously the right one there. I mean, uh, we evolved to think that pain was bad uh, because an organism that sought out its own pain would not pass on its genes. But even more fine-grained stuff, like why do I think I have um, more strenuous obligations to my children than to other people's children? There, too, an evolutionary explanation makes a lot of sense. And so I guess I would just say, you know, uh, we can say, oh, dogs kind of display these pseudo-moral traits uh, because they were bred to do so. But I think maybe to some extent, like, human morality (laughs) exists because... um, at, at some crude level, like it was adaptive for our ancestors to start seeing the world in moral terms, to start thinking with moral concepts, and even to start making particular moral judgments, like the idea that if someone does you a favor, uh, you should repay them in some way. Um, these were sort of adaptive thoughts to have, and they're at the heart of our, our moral, uh, moral thinking. Um, but there's also, you know, pretty good evolutionary explanations, um, or at least promising exp- evolutionary explanations for why we why we have these kinds of thoughts. Do you think that we have free will? <laughs> okay. Um, so the, the cop-out answer is, I, I think it depends on what you mean by free will. Um, so there's this great uh, zinger from Isaac Beshevis Singer who says, uh, we must believe in free will. We have no choice. Um, and I think there's kind of something to that. Like, Free will, uh, in some sense, uh, is a very important idea. Like, as you were saying, intentions matter. 
And when we make moral judgments about people, it's really, really important whether, uh, you know, whether I judge that you hit me of your own free will, say you decided to punch me in the face, or you had an involuntary muscle spasm and did this, and it wasn't something that you did of your own free will. Because if you had a muscle spasm, um, you know, I, I'm probably not going to blame you. Uh, you know, maybe maybe you shouldn't have been there or whatever, but like, I'm not going to blame you. I'm not going to say that you should be punished. I'm not going to retaliate. Whereas if you punch me in the face of your own free will, um, that calls for a totally different response. So that's just to say, um, the idea of free will in some sense is very important in our lives. Um, and I'm kind of skeptical that we can do without some notion, whether we call it free will or just voluntary behavior versus non-voluntary behavior. Um, but there are like traditional strong notions of free will, what philosophers call libertarian free will. Um, this is not libertarianism in the political sense at all. It's just a different, a different notion. Um, but libertarian free will is the idea that, you know, all of the choices you've made today, or at least a significant chunk of the choices you've made today, you could have done you could have done differently, in the sense that if we rewound the tape of history, and this morning you woke up and everything about the universe was exactly the same, this idea that you could have done otherwise than what you did, and that notion of free will I think has some philosophical problems. Um, because uh, we tend to think of the world in terms of cause and effect. And if your behavior over the course of this morning had causes, um, then you might think if those causes were held fixed and were the same, the, the behavior would be the same. Now, mm -hmm. there's interesting wrinkles in quantum mechanics and indeterminacy that, that complicate this picture a little bit. Um, but not in a way, I think, that, that saves uh, libertarian ideas of free will. Because if if the fundamental physical layer of the universe is indeterminate, that doesn't look like human free will. It looks like randomness, as far as I can tell. Um, so it's just to say, uh, if by free will we mean if, if you rewound the tape of history and the universe was exactly as it was at 8 a.m. this morning, you could have behaved totally differently. I'm not sure that's really true. I'm not sure we really have free will in that sense. Um, but I do think we might have what's sometimes called compatibilist free will, the idea that we can make a meaningful, useful distinction between behavior that's that's voluntary, that's the result of you making a conscious choice, say, to do something, and behavior that's not. Um, and this is just a very ordinary sort of work-a-day distinction. I mean, there's a difference between you choosing to do something uh, of your own volition and somebody putting a gun to your head and making you do it, say. And so we want to we want to be able to preserve that distinction between you know, voluntary behavior and voluntary and behavior that's sort of deeply unfree product of coercion or involuntary muscle spasms or whatever. Uh, but in the deepest philosophical sense, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical that we have this kind of, uh, you know, metaphysically robust libertarian free will. I don't mm. know. What do you think, though? Um, so but before I give my opinion on free will. Mm hmm. The, would you agree that if there is no free will, then morality must be, like, completely subjective? Hmm. I don't think I would agree with that. Um, 
so here's here's one way of thinking about it. I mean, I guess it depends on our sort of uh, our picture of what morality is. So um, here's one picture, right? And I think I think a lot of people operate with this picture in the back of their minds, even if even if they're not conscious of it or or, or don't mean to. Um, take this sort of like traditional classical monotheist view, like a sort of orthodox Christian picture of the world, where morality is sort of all about like there are these, um, say, divine laws, and each of us has the power to either like obey the divine laws or to uh, sin against them. And mm-hmm. uh, it's a matter of like our inner uh, worth. I mean, there's different theological traditions. So I'm kind of, uh, this is kind of a crude picture, but the picture I'm considering, right? Uh, you, every one of us has the power to choose whether to like obey the divine laws or rebel against them. And it's it's within our control. And if we rebel against them, you know, that's a choice that we made and therefore we're deserving the punishment. I think a lot of people, um, even in an increasingly secular world, like don't consciously hold that picture, but it's kind of shaping the way that a lot of people think about morality as this matter of like deep inner worth in your soul. Um, But there's different ways of thinking about morality. So if you go back to like the ancient Greeks, um, someone like Aristotle isn't operating with that picture at all. Someone like Aristotle is just like, look, some human beings are excellent and some are not. Um, What are the characteristics of an excellent human being? And then he tries to give some. And um, the idea that even if we live in a world with no free will, that there could still be excellent human beings and less excellent human beings, I think makes total sense. I mean, there are some uh, there are some plants that uh, grow healthy and strong and flourish, and some plants that wither. And we don't think that plants have free will, but there are still differences, noticeable differences between like a good plant and a bad plant. <laughs> and so, well, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't you, you say around, that? Yeah, go ahead. Wouldn't you say that most of that is completely dependent on the environment that it exists in, though? Right, because yeah. even if you want to make the argument that there's an excellent human and there's a non-excellent human, uh-huh. if you change the context around, it completely switches, and that same non-excellent human can now become the excellent human. So, if you take, for example, back before, like we had modern day society, and so much of our lives were, were hunting and, you know, taking control over areas and, and taking care of your tribe. I would say the what's considered moral and just actions on other humans of other tribes is a lot different than what is considered moral, broadly speaking, in, in the same way today. If you took two different tribes or cultures, like we would expect that you treat them in the way that you would treat your your own people versus back then Uh that certainly wasn't held true and a lot of the time there was there was more justification or more a a more moral way that you could act with violence or like hesitation to accept and things like that that today we would totally shun and so Mm -hmm. that picture of what someone who's excellent would be completely different Mm -hmm. then than today yeah, I think that's right. So, um, yeah, and, and there are a lot of hard questions about relativism here. Uh, I mean, to some to some extent, everyone can acknowledge, even people who believe in objective morality can acknowledge that different circumstances give rise to different moral obligations, right? So that doesn't necessarily make you a relativist. So, so I could say something like, look, in most circumstances, it's wrong to like shove small children to the ground, 
but in a set of circumstances where you know a bus is coming and the only way to save a kid is to shove him to the ground, then that's actually the morally right thing to do. So even someone who believes in objective morality might say, you know, in a totally different environment, like a, a scarce, brutal hunter-gatherer past, say, um, maybe maybe that would give rise to different moral obligations. And that doesn't necessarily make you a complete relativist. Um, but I think you're right that definitely one of the biggest sort of moral changes over human history is like our attitudes towards um, strangers or members of the outgroup. And um, right, so this idea that it was not morally wrong to behave in even, even in brutal ways to certain outgroup members was I think pretty common in a lot of human history. And now we, uh, for the most part, uh, you know, to some extent have overcome that. So yeah, what are we to make of that? I, I have a lot of thoughts about this. I guess the first thing I would say is I do think there's a kind of moral progress there, but the way that I understand that moral progress is not something like, there was always a, a universal objective moral law against say killing members of the outgroup and it's only recently that modern people have been smart enough to discover this universal moral law. Um, I would say the kind of moral progress we've made uh, is more like the kind of technological progress we've made in certain areas, which is we have these uh, moral codes and they've changed over time. And in some ways they've gotten better, and, but I don't know that they've gotten better in the sense that they've better captured the objective eternal moral truth. I think they've gotten better in the sense that um, they they do their jobs better. <laughs> and one of the jobs of our, our moral codes is to allow us to sort of um, live relatively harmoniously, to um, have ways of sort of resolving conflict, to secure the benefits of social cooperation and so on. Um, so anyway, that's to say when I compare ourselves to the, you know, um, the relatively, from our perspective, brutal norms that often prevailed in the past, I do think in some ways, like, um, I mean, certainly rather live now than then. And I do, I do think it's it's fair to say that we've made moral progress. Um, but I don't know that the progress is best understood in terms of our moral codes becoming more true. Um, there's at least an alternative model on which the moral progress is, uh, we have moral codes that, um, that are sort of better suited to doing the things that we want them to do. Um, and I'm I'm grateful for those changes. Yeah, I that's a tough one, right? Because it becomes the question of what's the difference between simply different and progress. And then it, it comes back to again, how do we define that in our society? Is moral progress today and what we would think of it as to be progress, is that actually progress to some other human in some other environment that was looking at you know us today in say a thousand years from now um mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. yeah that, that that's an interesting one I, I am curious kind of more broadly speaking about a societal level of, of morality how much do you think morality is built into our government and governing bodies and is would you say law is at least in the US, would you say law is a reasonable proxy for more morality? Or do you think it's not even like close? Those are very separate things that have mm -hmm. some overlaps here and there. Or would you say they, they align pretty well? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess 
I find that a slightly tough question to answer in the abstract. I mean, I guess I would start by saying clearly the overlap between law and morality is not absolute. Um, we can point to obvious examples all throughout history of unjust laws where something would be, um, you know, one thing is morally correct and the other is what the law says. Um, and, and surely we're not, we haven't, you know, miraculously arrived at the point where there's perfect coincidence between the two things. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, again, this is an area where we've made things that I'm perfectly happy to call moral progress. So um, all, all of the, the sort of results of the, um, the abolitionist movement, the sort of first wave feminist movement, the civil rights movement, um, more recent sort of uh, LGBT equality movements and many other areas, I think, you know, our, our moral norms and in many cases our laws have kind of like changed for the better. Um, yeah, I mean, the cases right now where I think in my mind there's the, the most questionable uh, perhaps divergence between law and morality, um, one of them would just be sort of the eye-popping inequality that we've seen growing over the last number of decades. So we have lots of laws, sometimes very complex, that uh, determine who owns what. <laughs> and sometimes I think we forget that that property is um, is a function of the law, right? It's like it's easy to think that it's just a fact of the universe that I own this water bottle or something. But but actually, for me to own it is for me to have a kind of legally enforceable claim. And what legally enforceable claims I have depend on what the laws are, and we can change the laws. And our current laws are such that like you know we live in the wealthiest, most powerful country in the history of the world. Uh, and we still have a lot of poverty. We have people who are going bankrupt over medical debt. And uh, we have a lot of suffering that I think is probably preventable um, if we were to just make some policy changes. I'm not sure that the political will is there, but that, I don't think that necessarily um, changes the, the morality of it. So that would be one, that'd be one place where I think, um, you know, the law and morality might not perfectly align. Um, another one, just to name one more example, um, you know, I'm very concerned about what we're doing to the environment. The, the policy, uh, you know, solutions to climate change are uh, complex and I don't have, I don't have novel or well thought out answers. Um, but I think this is one of those issues where it's very likely that future humans uh, are going to look back and be like, holy crap, I mean, just like we look back at, you know, slavery and we're like, how could people have done something so immoral? It's very likely that future humans will look back and be like, wow, our ancestors really uh, screwed us in a lot of ways. How could they have been so cavalier about um, about changing the climate and emitting so much, uh, so many greenhouse gases and things like that? And so that's another area where uh, our, our laws and morality, I think, might, might well be out of step. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess one more question that's interesting is whether there's an obligation to obey the law. And I think you might, you know, you could at least make a plausible argument that there's a kind of prima facie or pro tanto obligation to obey the law, even when the law, um, you know, e even when the, the actions in question aren't inherently moral or immoral, right? So there's nothing morally better about driving on the right side of the road than the left. But given that we have the law, um, it is morally incumbent upon people to obey traffic laws because um, that's an important part of how we, you know, keep people safe. And so I think in a lot of cases we could say there's kind of a presumptive obligation to obey the law, but I definitely wouldn't want to say it can't be 
overridden if the law is unjust or um, or otherwise bad. Sure. So I don't want to, you know, I I certainly feel strongly that some of the things that in the past as a society, as human beings that we've done, it has been atrocious and terrible, both in the past and in the present. So not to necessarily justify each and every one of those things, but just to play a little bit of a devil's advocate to what you're saying, um, there are plenty of examples where I would say it's kind of opposite to, to your example. So like, for example, you're, you bring up the environment and how what we're doing to the environment is not necessarily good and, and not necessarily moral, especially given our understanding today of, of the implications. Um, but if you take something like the Industrial Revolution in the U.S., for example, if we had not had that, I, I think we can agree that starting to burn a ton of fossil fuels and build up railroads and, you know, mine the minerals and, and different materials from the earth in order to build these large cities was probably not the best thing for the environment, for the air, for, you know, the inhabiting animals in the environment that we built on top of. And so, but, but at the same time, I would make the argument that that was a necessary thing, a necessary phase that we had to go through in order to arrive at this position that we're in now, where we can have this broader view of, you know, what matters in the environment and what are our implications and longer term, how do things happen? Like, I, I'm not sure that if we didn't go through that phase, we would have the technology or the understanding of things the way we do today. So my question would be, how can you, how can anyone sit and look at society today and some of the things that happen today and have a, a decent or, or correct moral compass of this is right or this is wrong, right? Because who knows, who's to say that the things and the technologies we're working on today that are still polluting the environment could lead to innovations that ultimately help us save the environment in a way that we never could have saved if we hadn't had those. And mm -hmm. that's just one example. I'm, you know, certainly there there's things that happen in the environment that shouldn't be happening. I'm not trying to make any blanket statements or assumptions or anything like that. But just broadly speaking, how can you address that or navigate that with this sort of like hazy, nebulous view of the future? We don't know what what's going to be in, in a thousand years. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Predictions are hard, especially about the future. Um, yeah. So, I mean, if, if, if we want to sort of like focus in on one moral question, I think one question that's sort of relevant is um, you can always sort of ask the question, like, should someone have known better? Um, and, you know, I, I, just to take sort of two examples of this, right. Um, if we're talking about like the ancient world thousands of years ago and say a practice like, um, you know, enslavement is just sort of like completely ubiquitous and there's not really any reform movements questioning it. There's kind of an interesting, you know, uh, thought experiment. You could say like, oh, if I were to go back and live in that society, would I have been able to have come to the conclusion that slavery was wrong? But compare that to like someone living in the U.S. in the 1850s, like, there's a very well-known abolitionist movement. There's people who have 
uh, been developing these arguments for quite some time. You have, you know, um, brilliant people like Frederick Douglass sort of railing against the evils of slavery. And, you know, I think at that point in history, it's like, it's hard to say that there's any excuse. I mean, it's hard to say that like right. people were so, um, were such a product of their time that they couldn't have known that slavery was wrong by then. And so I think maybe something similar could be said of like the industrial revolution. So, you know, when the, um, when the steam engine was invented, like could anyone have predicted that burning coal was going to uh, start trapping heat in the atmosphere and raise the, uh, you know, mean global temperature or something like probably not it you know in the in the 1820s or something it, it probably couldn't have been reasonably foreseen that these new technologies would have uh potentially catastrophic consequences but you know since like let's say the 80s or so like the basic mechanisms of the greenhouse effect and uh, what happens when you emit a whole bunch of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and burn all these fossil fuels like I would say, I think it's been fairly well known. There's been people blowing the whistle about it. And there's also been some documentary, documented malfeasance in terms of trying people trying to muddy the waters on the issue, right? So there's a book called uh, Merchants of Doubt by uh, Naomi Oreskes that kind of details how just, just like the tobacco companies try to cover up the evidence that smoking causes cancer, um, you know, there were people in the energy, energy industry who were like, look, uh, if people learn about climate change, it's really going to call into question our bottom line, we need to, uh, we need to muddy the waters at the very least. And that's the point where I would say, like, maybe it's harder to find excuse. Um, once the information was out there that emitting tons of uh, greenhouse gases is going to raise global temperatures in ways that could be pretty bad for human beings, um, you know, it, it's harder to hold people blameless, I would say. Um, I mean, but you're absolutely right. Like, the, the results of technological innovation, I mean, we wouldn't be having this conversation uh, if it weren't for um, the industrial revolution and the uh, computing revolution and like all of the um, incredible things that we've been able to do with, with technology. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't have obligations to try to um, minimize the harm at least as much as we can going forward. Um, sure from things like climate change. Yeah that, yeah, that also brings up something that makes things even more a little confusing than they already are, mm -hmm. is that when you live in a society like ours where we strive to grant other people the freedom and agency to have their own opinions that one would deem equal to their own, that's mm -hmm. where it, it becomes tough, right? Because you have to learn how to discern between an opinion that's rooted in a genuine moral belief that's different than your mm -hmm. own versus one that's rooted in self-interest that's mimicking one rooted in true, deep mm -hmm. self-moral belief. <laughs> and so I think, yeah. you know, we, we see that challenge in a lot of places. A good example is in, like, financial regulation or, you know, things like, like, for example, Congress being able to make trades and the the spouses of, of their, you know, of them mm -hmm. being able to trade on the free market kind of on their own terms. Like that's something where does it make a lot of moral sense? Uh, you know, want, you might have a different opinion if you're in Congress. How much of mm -hmm. that opinion is genuinely in your core, like you feel this way versus 
there's an opportune chance for you to take advantage of a system in a way that benefits you. And I think that's something that we struggle with in our society on both sides of the aisle, like all the time. Um, so how do you think we could better handle these moral dilemmas or disagreements maybe in society? How can you, is there a way or a strategy that we could employ as a, as a culture to do a better job of discerning between these two types of beliefs? Um, and, and is there a better way to handle when we do have clashing opinions or disagreements than we currently do? Yeah, that's a really great question. So I don't know if I have a great answer to it. I would add one more layer to the thorniness of the problem, which is um, <clears throat> I think you're right that we might have a hard time discerning when somebody else is articulating a sincere, well-founded moral conviction, even if it differs from our own, and when they're sort of like mimicking moral language for self-interested purposes. To that, I would just add, I think sometimes we ourselves, all of us, have a hard time knowing when we're doing that. Um, so I think people do have this remarkable capacity for self-deception, where um, and it comes out in, in moral cases. So it's not that morality is all about um, finding sneaky ways to get ahead or whatever, but there have been interesting things uh, written on you know this phenomenon of moral grandstanding, and it seems kind of undeniable that one way that people use moral talk um, is to try to raise their own standing in various ways. You know whether it's people um, you know gaming the sort of moral discourse to try to get privileges, like being able to trade stock, or just to sort of like call attention to themselves, like people, you know, sort of moralizing on social media, where it's like, look how much I care about this cause. But maybe at least part of the motive is like, they want to raise their own status, right? Get some likes. Yeah. So yeah, so <clears throat> I think one of the, the tricky things is like, I think if we're being really honest with ourselves, um, we're probably all doing some of both all the time, you know, in, in all of our interactions, where we talk about morality, um, we're, we're both trying to give voice to like the, our sincere moral concerns that we have. Um, but, but we're also, we're social animals that care about things like status. And so, you know, even in this conversation, like I, I'm saying things I believe, but I'm probably also trying to sound smart, you know? Um, so, so the, the interests and the motivations I think are somewhat mixed. Um, how do we get around that? I mean, I don't have, I don't have a great answer, but I do think, um, you know, this is what I would say as a philosophy professor, like the critical intellectual tools um, of, of, you know, basic skills in critical thinking, identifying logical fallacies, getting experience with sort of analyzing and critiquing arguments. Um, I think these are among the best tools that like we human beings have to try to respond to this phenomenon of people gaming the moral system for their own self-interest. Um, just trying to be able to, uh, yeah, critically reflect, like, what are the reasons that this person can provide for this moral view? Uh, what would what would an opposing argument be? And which argument is stronger? And we're never going to perfect this. But, you know, I do think that we can, we can move the needle at the margins in terms of um, educating people to be critical moral thinkers, so to speak. And, you know, that... There, there might be other things we can do, but that's kind of my home base. And so that's what comes naturally to me is like, 
we we need to get better at analyzing moral arguments and um, and critiquing them. Mm. Yeah, to me, I think one way, very much my subjective opinion, but I think one way that we can sort of get a head start or a cheat code to kind of incorporate morals in a, a little bit of an easier way is to live in an environment in a society where we align as much as possible the incentives of the individual with the incentives of the society, right? Because if mm-hmm. I can make a moral decision, if I can make a decision that's self-interested, but it also is the better moral decision for our society, I'm 100% of the time going to make that. And the biggest challenges, the biggest dilemmas are when you have a lot to gain and it's pretty much orthogonal to society's best interests or, or society's mm-hmm. moral best interests. So I think picking a system and you know which system that is and what rules are in place in that system are obviously subjective and my opinion is going to be different than yours and anyone else's. But I think trying to make decisions and come to beliefs and, and conclusions and support like laws and configurations and um, you know politicians and any in general trying to build out that vision of a society that you think as an individual aligns those two incentive structures best I think to me that that's the best shortcut to getting the majority of society to act in what would be considered like a moral or best best for the greater good kind of way mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's I think that's great. I think I agree with uh, with all of that. I mean, people do respond to incentives. Um, we want to set things up uh, in such a way that we, as much as we can, sort of align individual interests with collective interests. Um, yeah, and <clears throat> I mean, that does make me think. Like one of one of the things that's relevant and I think is kind of troubling is just like the. Um, the increasing sort of isolation, loneliness, you know, atomization of our society, I think is relevant here because to the extent that people feel connected with people around them and feel genuine concern for them, the the gap between like, you know, what's self-interest and what's sort of pro-social shrinks, right? Like to the extent that I care about people around me, uh, it's kind of in my self-interest to, to help take care of them. Uh, right. And to the extent that we all like become atomized and, um, don't have these social connections, then then there is this real conflict. Uh, I definitely don't have magic bullets there, but um, you know, I, 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 it does seem it does seem sort of relevant to this question of aligning these incentives. Totally, I think specifically one of my biggest interests or qualms or questions I like to ponder myself is the implications of some of these new technologies. Um, Mm -hmm. specifically one I can think of that's really bad. Like you said, the loneliness and that kind of stuff, social media from my perspective and seeing those around me and as well as the effects on myself, the more involved and consumed you get with some of these platforms, um, the, the more challenging it becomes to, to keep those, relationships and interests of others and general moral good in mind. I think one thing that makes it tough is, again, to take it back a little bit to incentives, these social media companies or any of these platforms, not to pick one specific, I think they're all pretty guilty of it, 
their incentives are, are not aligned with the individual, right? Back in the day with Craigslist or with like MapQuest, for example, it was very much, here's a tool that is, would be really useful for people to have and we can put this on the internet and then people can print out maps or people can message their friends. But now it's shifted, right, where if I'm Meta or Facebook or if I'm TikTok or Instagram, doesn't matter, my interests are no longer how can I serve my customer best, it's how can I get the most out of my users. And sometimes it, it aligns in that, well, if we offer our users you know, this cool feature, they'll be on our platform for a longer period of time and we can show them more advertisements and we can you know, mine more of their data. And so I think that's, that's a tough one is trying to understand how some of these newer technologies are, are gonna fit into the broader picture and how we can maintain the incentive structure where it's beneficial for users and for companies. Because I don't think, you know, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, like they also shouldn't be forced to provide all these services for free or to not have, you know, their own self-interest from like a corporate perspective. But I think it's really tough because we don't know very well what's going to happen. It's kind of uncharted territory, right, in terms of what is what is going to be? What is what is Facebook going to be? When Facebook was first made, what you would have thought it would have been 20 years later or 10 years later is much different than probably what it actually is. So that's something that I have found particularly tough is trying to look around at these technologies, understand like or even conceptualize what they might be in 10 years and kind of back out then how should they actually operate? Um, you know, it are are these things public utilities or, or should they operate completely as private entities and have full say over what their users can and can't do and who can and can't be on the platform? Those are all questions that we might not have time to get into fully in this conversation, but I think kind of at the heart of what we've discussed, like there are a lot of implications that kind of overlap there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, I, I do sort of joke around sometimes in some of these conversations. Like, I, I do kind of think that smartphones are the new cigarettes in a lot of ways. Like, um, and when I think of just, we, we've discovered, I think, in the age of social media, a lot of things that have, uh, you know, features similar to various drugs of abuse, right? Things that, that feel good um, and that are habit-forming and that leave a lot of people at the end of the day um, with habits that they wish they didn't have, right? And they find themselves coming back to it over and over and then uh, have this kind of cycle of like, they don't feel good about it, they don't wanna do it. Um, but one of them is like, you know, the endless scroll. And uh, I think we know that like, there are these psychological mechanisms where uh, you never know when something interesting is gonna come up on the endless scroll. Right that keep people coming back for more. And it, it was at least a kind of pseudo addictive kind of way. And I don't know, the, the war on drugs is kind of an interesting uh, metaphor because it has a lot of problems. And it's not clear that sort of banning habit forming uh, harmful substances is the way to go. But on the other hand, um, I, I think we have to do something, you know, I think it's clear that lots and lots of people, especially young people, are spending way more time on social media than is good for them. 
and that the, the mental health effects of it are negative. And I think to the extent, you know, that we at least make this conceptual shift so that we put this in the same category uh, in our heads as, as drugs of abuse. Um, I don't know. I think, I think that's maybe the first step. In terms of like policy proposals, like I don't think it's totally outlandish. Some of the things that people are saying about not letting kids get social media accounts till they're at least 16 or something like that. Um, some of the proponents of those views are people I uh, don't agree with on a lot of political issues, but I don't know. I think it's worth considering. I mean, when you look at like the, the trends in mental health among young people, especially girls uh, over the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, it's, it's devastating. And I think we, we have Absolutely. to consider, um, you know, what, what an adequate response to that might look like. Yeah. And a, another thing that I think is really tough, similarly, is if you look at the, the policymakers and generally politics, people who tend to carry the torch with a lot of policy in our country, it's mm -hmm. people who are, as a rule of thumb, from the older generations, right? And mm -hmm. so they probably aren't experiencing, to the degree that the younger generations are, the impacts and influence of some of these technologies. And beyond that, um, they don't always have full understandings of how they work, right? You see when some of the big tech company leaders were brought into Congress and they were started to get questions, like some of those questions made no sense. And it was clear mm -hmm. that, the pe that the people that were asking them these questions didn't have a, a working uh, understanding of how this is working and how they're making their money and how, you know, they don't have the full picture. And that's no knock at the people who are asking those questions or who are in Congress. It's That's totally outside of what ever would have been their wheelhouse. But it, it becomes tough to then address the question of when you have such a large disconnect and that disconnect's only growing because technology is exponential in nature, right? So as that advancement continues to happen and the people who have to kind of play catch up with policy are further and further behind, that, that makes it really tough. Um, I, I mean, even with finance, you see that where back before um, 2008 or before back in like the 80s and the 90s, a lot of policies that are in place now, some of the fail safes, some of the regulations, they didn't exist. And some of that I'm sure was self-interest due to overlapping interests of high up financial professionals and overlapping interests of high up um, regulators. But I think a lot of it too is when something new gets developed or a new financial product or a new way of making money and maybe it's kind of in a gray area of, well, you know, maybe it's not super ethical and maybe it, it should be regulated, but if regulation hasn't caught up to that, how are you gonna regulate it? And I think finance, you know, we've seen that over time, like obviously it's a sort of cat and mouse game there, but with technology, it's a little bit different and a little bit scarier because I think technology, it's more so technology is taking off like a rocket ship and regulations still on earth. So it's not as much a, a given a back and forth and like a push and pull kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it's very scary. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I really agree with uh, your analysis there. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's understandable that it takes a while when new things come out for regulation to catch up. Um, but I think, you know, we're kind of, we're hitting that phase now where it's like, uh, just like there was a time when it, you know, the needle shifted and it's like, okay, now we know cigarettes are bad for us. 
I mean, the analogy isn't perfect, but okay, now we know that social media is, is bad for young people in a variety of ways. Um, you know, it's, it's time. It's time to stop gathering the evidence and probably time to start doing something about it, I think. Right. Yeah. And that, that's kind of part of, part of the reason that I think having these discussions are important is the more data points and drops in the bucket you can get kind of bringing these questions to light, probably the better, um, you know, so hopefully, hopefully we look back in a hundred years and we're like, man, that was, that was kind of close, but good thing we got that under control. Hopefully that's how we're looking at it in a hundred years, but I guess time will tell. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's about all the time that we have. Um, but I really appreciate the conversation. Um, definitely some thought provoking conversation and, um, some good insight into morals and morality that I, I maybe don't have due to some lack of research and readings over the past mm -hmm. years in my own um, accord. So uh, I really appreciate the time. Yeah, this was really fun. I appreciate you having me on. <laughs>